1.4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on, went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn, uh, her head, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who, hire, who, who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the dark, in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When the Virgin Mary sang her song following the announcement of the angel Gabriel at the end of Luke chapter chapter 1, um, that song is famously called the Magnificat. And uh, it is based on Hannah's song right here in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 2. So I thought it would be kind of nice this morning to go to a different passage of scripture, you know, one that we don't normally look at during the Advent season and you know, see Hannah's story, Hannah's song, and... Uh, Try and gain a better understanding of uh, the second Hannah, Mary, and her son, Jesus Christ. 
So we have the setting of Hannah's song. It is not the most pleasant of settings. It's a polygamous marriage. Did you know that every polygamous family ever depicted in the Bible is dysfunctional and miserable? <laughs> no surprise. Uh, I say that uh, at the beginning, you know, every polygamous family, it, it wasn't God's design. He, he allowed it. Noted Old Testament scholar Robert Alter, I think is his name. He said, from the first page to the last, the Bible does everything it possibly can to say that polygamy is a horrible idea. It dehumanizes women. It creates these, this discord inside of families, the distortions in the family unit. And they, we see that here, this, the rivalry and the jealousy between two, two wives. Uh, Hannah, she's tormented. She's taunted. Is she vindictive? Is there a hint of vindictiveness in uh, her song? You know, one of the things we teach our children is if somebody taunts you, you're supposed to you know, let it go, not get too upset about it. Why doesn't Hannah shrug the, these taunts off? You know, I remember growing up and uh, I played basketball all my days up into the ninth grade. But around the eighth or ninth grade, I, 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 I just... I had a growth spurt, and I went straight up, and um, I was just this tall, scrawny, nothing but skin and bones, wasn't able to make my ninth grade uh, junior high basketball team, but the coach liked me, and he said, I've got a great idea, Brad, here's what I'm going to do for you. I like you so much, I'm going to make you the student assistant to the basketball team, (laughs) which means that you're going to be the water boy, (laughs) and that's what they called me, you know, the, the beanpole water boy. And you were teased, maybe for your stuttering problems, uh, or your, your acne, or being overweight. So why doesn't she just shrug it off? Well, here's why. Um, because, you know, being in, in an ancient agrarian patriarchal culture, to taunt a woman about her barrenness is really to say that there's something truly defective about this woman. This woman, she's some gross deformity. I mean, you know, not all taunts are equal. You, you taunt a Down syndrome child about their deformity? Do you just shrug that off? I mean, the ability to bear a son in this culture, that meant everything. Your sons are what kept you alive. They protected you when you were in your old age and your husband had already died. It was your sons who would take you into their house and keep you. It was your sons who would go out into the fields and work on the family farm. The more sons you had, the more economic productivity you had, the more security you had, the more status you had. To, to taunt a woman about her barrenness in an ancient culture is, is really to, to stick a knife into the place where she feels most frightened and vulnerable. It's digging the knife in. Um, Which leads us to the remarkable verse 11. Hannah makes this vow. It's a remarkable vow. She says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give your servant a son, then I will give him back to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. So what's going on? 
in this vow. Well, tucked away in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, is this, they call it the Nazarite vow. If you wanted to, basically, if you wanted to be 1,000% devoted to God, utterly and completely devoted to God, you could take this thing called the Nazarite vow. It's not Nazareth. It has nothing to do with where Jesus grew up. The Nazarite vow. And the sign of being a Nazarite were two, twofold. You weren't allowed to drink any alcoholic beverages. And you weren't allowed to cut your hair. Hannah vows that her son is going to be a Nazarite. What is, what's strange about that? Well, two things. If you read the story in 1 Samuel, you discover that Hannah and her husband Elkanah were both from the tribe of Levi. They're both Levites. Levites. Oh yeah, that's the tribe that's devoted to God. Every Levite, every one of those, have this special relationship, this special devotion to God. They go on and they're given the temple and the temple service. There's nowhere else, in, in, there's no other place in all of the Bible where you get a Nazarite who's also a Levite, or a Levite who's also a Nazarite. I mean, that's the double whammy. <laughs> like, that's the way, there's, prior to Samuel, there never been a son quite like that. What it means is that the very moment he comes into the world, this boy is going, his sole purpose is to, serve God. From the very first breath that he takes to the first blinking of his eyes, this son is in this world in order to be entirely and completely uh, in service to God. Does that remind you of anyone? Yeah, you see how he foreshadows for us the Messiah. Well, secondly, though, uh, it's a strange vow because notice who's making it. It's not Samuel, it's his mom. Nowhere else in the Bible does a parent get to vow their child to be a Nazarite. Now, it would make perfect sense if Hannah was trying to make a a bargain with God. If she was going to make a deal with God, then she would, she'd say, God, if you give me a son, then I'll do what? Then I'll give myself back to you. I'll be a Nazarite. I will devote my life to you. But that's not the case. In fact, when, when Hannah makes this vow, there's a sense that um, she kills herself. What this means is that when her son turns, the eight, turns three, he will leave her home and never come back. A Nazarite Levite son, when he was weaned, in the case of Samuel, he leaves the home and he goes to the place called Shiloh, to the tabernacle there, and serves for the rest of his life as an assistant to the priest. He never comes back. All of the normal things that a, that a barren woman would want to get out of a son, she doesn't get any of it. This son is never going to, he's never going to work a day on the family farm. He's never going to be economically productive. He'll never send a paycheck back home to the family because he'll never earn a paycheck in, in the tabernacle. The emotional security that a mom would want from from her child, especially you know, it, it, they're so fun. Like in kindergarten, watching them do their plays and performances. You know, when all the other women in the village were were out on a walk with their sons, parading their sons, Anna's son's not there. She doesn't have him. 
When she grows old and when Elkanah dies and there's no social security to rely on, she doesn't have a son that's going to take care of her. Don't you see what's happening? It's at such great cost that she devotes her child to God. I don't even think we men, we cannot really appreciate this, uh, the, the sacrifice that this is. Um, only a mother, you know, only a mother. I mean, what are the three hardest years of mothering, moms? It's the three hardest years are the, the first three years and, and the pregnancy, going through the agony of childbirth, going through the, the long sleepless nights of nursing and diapers. Uh, and it, it's hard, but at least you know at the end of those three years, they're going to grow up. The terrible twos will end. You'll, you'll have a son. You'll get to go play at the park with him. He can walk on his own. At least you know that, that one day he'll grow up and that he'll be yours. On Thursday, I came across a four-hour Christmas video. It was done by some Christian organization. It's called Christmas Volunteers. Anybody seen the Christmas Volunteers Video, So it's set with a number of couples. They're walking into a building, looks like for maybe a dinner party, but the sign outside the building reads, uh, Volunteer couples needed, become parents of our future Savior. <laughs> so you have about 20 or so couples there, and a uh, man walks up to the podium and says, Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. This is an incredibly special event, one, one that we have not witnessed in our lifetime or Ever, for that matter, we are here to select a couple that will give birth to and raise the Savior of this world. And there's applause. This baby is the one each, each of us, all of mankind, has been waiting for. He's the promised Messiah, and his name will be Jesus. Now, only one couple will be selected, and you should be aware that certain requirements will be asked of you. I will go through, through the list, and if you choose not to participate, feel free to leave at any time, but thank you for your interest. So he pulls out his list, and he begins reading with uh, dramatic piano music in the background that would, would help the, the mood right now, but he starts. He says, the couple must be married, uh, must not be married, but must be engaged, which describes all of you. Now, this may sound crazy, but ladies, you're, you're going to be pregnant, not by your fiancé or by any other man. It will be by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not fully qualified to explain how that will work, so a fearsome angel will be coming to explain it to you any minute. You know, many of your friends, your family members won't understand, and they will accuse you, and you will have to be okay with that. At this point, several of the couples begin to walk out of the room. It will be a difficult pregnancy requiring painful travel. In fact, you will deliver in an unfamiliar place far from home. You'll have no place to stay there. There will be no hospitals, no nurses, no doctors. You probably assume this already, but it will be a natural birth, no drugs. Several more couples exit. When the baby is born, you will wrap him in rags and lay him in a box that farm animals eat from. It will be far from sanitary, but as difficult as it will be, our Savior will be here in the form of your son. Then Jesus will grow up, and he will eventually reveal who he really is. 
He will be perfect, both fully God and fully human. He will show us how to love. He will heal the sick, give hope to the weary, which is all of us. But he will also die at a relatively young age. And he will suffer beyond anything we have ever imagined. In his final days, he will be mocked, whipped, beaten to the point that you, mother, will not recognize your son. He will be betrayed, accused, and sentenced to be nailed to a cross. And you will watch this happen till the very end. The man takes his list, he folds it back up, looks up from his podium, and how many people are... How many people are still in the room? Yeah. We wouldn't volunteer for the job. A father wouldn't volunteer for this, but especially a mother wouldn't volunteer for this. Do you remember, fast forward just a little bit after Christmas, Mary and Joseph bring the child Jesus into the temple to present him to the Lord. And there's an older man there by the name of Simeon, whom God has prophetically spoken to and said, your eyes, you will actually see the Messiah before you die. So they bring baby Jesus into the temple. And Simeon says, now, Lord, thank you. Now you may dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen the Messiah. He will, this child will be, bring about the rising and the falling of many, of, many in Israel. And then what were the last words? that Simeon said. Who did he direct it to? It was to Mary. He looks Mother Mary square in the eye and says, and even a sword will pierce your heart. She's the second Hannah. She's the the mother who gives birth in joy, which leads to heartbreak. Finally, briefly, we, uh, we see the mission of these two sons in their mother's songs. It would probably work better if I went through and read to you um, the Magnificat out of Luke chapter 1, but you can do it later today. You'll, they're, they're not identical, but they're very similar. It's very clear that Magnificat is based on Hannah's song. Um, what is the mission of these two sons? Through their sons, it says, God will scatter the proud, bring down the powerful, Fill the hungry and send the rich away empty. These two sons, both of their lives, Samuel and Jesus, will bring about a great reversal in this world's order where uh, no longer will the Caesar be on top of the, the, the world. You know, with the reversal, it's, it's poor Galilean fishermen who are, who are on the throne. Um, it's poor widows who come into the temple and donate their, their penny might. Those are the heroes in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones, it's, it's the poor, it's, the, it's the, uh, the, all the poor on this, uh, the hillside of the Sea of Galilee just longing for some bread and some fish. They're the ones that are going to be fed. Don't you see? The sons bring about the great reversal um, for the poor. We should always remember the poor. We should especially, especially remember the poor given the fact that our Savior was incarnate as a poor man. I mean, if Christmas was happening today in the year 2016, you know that Jesus would not have been born to probably any of us. He would not have been born to middle-class, college-educated, suburbs couple. He would have been, he, he chose to be 
the, the son and daughter of a, a teenage peasant family, blue-collar blue carpenter in a third-world country. No, he wouldn't volunteer for the job, and God wouldn't even give us the job because he came for the poor. How much money are you going to spend on, on Christmas presents for friends and family this Christmas? How much money am I going to spend uh, on the poor this Christmas? Are those two numbers anywhere like near each other? Are they at all? Are they even are they even in the same zip code? Wonder of wonders, Jesus Christ came to lift up the hungry and poor. Do you realize that in week six of Mary's pregnancy, the Son of God was an embryo no bigger than an apple seed? That was week week six. An embryo no bigger than an apple seed. Week seven of Mary's pregnancy, God Almighty, El Shaddai, was no bigger than the size of a small grape. Week eight, he was about the size of of an average strawberry. And in week 40, he was born to a very poor teenage girl in order to scatter the thoughts of those who are proud, to send the rich away empty, but to, to, to feed the hungry. The hungry he is filled with good things. Those who hunger shall hunger no more.